0: This is BIV Today, the daily video and podcast from the journalists at BIV. I'm Haley Wooden. Kuzma, also known as USMCA, the new NAFTA, NAFTA 2.0, whatever you want to call it. It took effect at the start of this month, and today, on today's show, we revisit exactly what that deal means for Western Canadians and Western Canadian businesses. We also take a look at the future of the Canada-U.S. relationship. Joining me for the conversation, Carlo Dade, Director of the Trade and Investment Centre at the Canada West Foundation. Joining me from Calgary, Carlo, good to have you on the show.
1: Hey, Hallie. Uh, Yes, we have a new name for the agreement, the Seinfeld Agreement. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> and why might that be?
1: Well, you remember that Seinfeld was a show about nothing. Yep. That's pretty much what we have with this agreement, which is why the media coverage, I think, has been not been tantamount or, or equal to what we've seen with other agreements. Uh, it's pretty much a non-story. Um, there are some specific things that businesses really have to worry about, especially companies that use the agreement. Uh, But there really weren't major, major changes. And it is pretty much life as normal with that one proviso about having to update your paperwork for businesses. uh, that's uh, that's really important.
0: What would you say is the the top thing or top couple of things that businesses should really be wary of and that they should be planning for when it comes to this agreement?
1: The first thing for businesses that use uh, the trade liberalizing provisions, Uh, rules of origin to take advantage of tariff reductions and other things. There are new paperwork requirements with the agreement. Now, these requirements are in most cases a bit less onerous uh, for most of the small businesses and, uh, and your listeners, but they are different. And just because the company qualified under the old agreement doesn't necessarily mean that they'll qualify under the new one. So it's really important to contact a lawyer, or a customs broker or, or someone to make sure if you're planning using the agreement that, that you're up on the new rules. Um, for some companies in the other sector, the rules are viciously more complicated and, and, and more complex. Um, for others like the apparel companies, uh, Lululemon and the other guys out there in Vancouver, the rules on um, textiles weren't finalized I think until the day before or the day that the agreement came into place so they may have to do some scrambling but yeah that's the biggest thing for firms Uh, if you want to use the agreement spend the time and a couple bucks to check with a customs broker or a lawyer to make sure that um, that you'll qualify under the new agreement and that what you've done to qualify is up to date
0: Mm -hmm. I know the topic of aluminum tariffs came up in the news again. Trudeau said he mentioned the issue on his recent call with President Trump and suggested that now would not be the time to impose U.S. tariffs on Canadian aluminum products. Generally speaking, how great of a risk is there now that we have this new agreement that we could see unilateral tariffs imposed by the U.S. on Canadian goods?
1: So for steel and aluminum in particular, the agreement we have with, had or have with the Americans did not end the tariffs. It simply put them on hiatus. It, it, in fact, this is one of the worst agreements on the trade front I think I've ever seen. The agreement states that the Americans can reimpose, re-impose tariffs if imports into the U.S. surge past a historic norm. So you, you know, obviously looking for the footnote. What the heck is surge, what the heck is a historic norm? And what the period do you use? There is no footnote to define those terms. In essence, it's whatever the Americans say, which is what we're seeing now, the Americans are saying import surge, we're saying, what do you mean? And the Americans say, well, they surge when we say they surge, and we say that they're surging. We also with that agreement gave up the right um, to issue retaliatory tariffs on things other than the exact same things that the Americans impose tariffs on. So normally, the Americans impose tariffs on steel and aluminum. We impose tariffs on Harley-Davidson's and Bourbon, the target congressional districts. We surrendered that right with this agreement. So steel and aluminum is an exceptionally bad agreement and an exceptionally egregious case of um, caving into the Americans. Obviously, people that use steel and aluminum would say we have no choice, but that's a different debate. Your question, though, about the general threat is hugely important. You know, we've written about this at the Canada West Foundation, the Peterson Institute in Washington, DC has written extensively about this. But that threat is real, it's present, and it's constantly active. Any point in time, President Trump can initiate new national security investigations on any product that we trade with the US. Uh, once that investigation runs course, he's then free to declare a So pretty much everything that we trade with the U.S. is subject to that threat. More important, the president can at any time declare a national emergency, as he did on the southern border with Mexico, claimed an emergency over immigration. Then we wake up one morning to define that because he declared an emergency, he now has the right to impose unilateral tariffs on every good crossing the U.S.-Mexican border, which he threatened to do in, I think, May or March of last year. We woke up one morning. The president says, if Mexico doesn't stop people moving across the border, I'm going to impose a 5% tariff on everything coming across, and that tariff will jump to 10% in a couple of weeks. He can do the same thing to us. In fact, President Nixon did it to us, um, during the Nixon shots. But we've never had a president that used the power so recklessly, so randomly, and with such abandon. We have never seen this frequency and intensity and disregard uh, for traditional trade rules before. So that threat hangs over. And the last bit on this, it's not just that you wake up one morning and there's steel and aluminum tariffs or there are tariffs on all those, but it's the retaliatory tariffs. So if you're running a bar in Vancouver, a barbecue joint, and you've got a hundred different types of bourbon, you may not think that steel and aluminum tariffs or tariffs on autos are going to bother you until the retaliatory tariffs come into place and you wake up one morning and find that your bill to import bourbon from the US has gone through the roof. So any business is potentially at threat, not just from the direct tariffs, but then from the tit for tat retaliatory tariffs that come into play afterwards. In the agreement, all those were protected. So our government carved out protections for the automobile industry. We get a million cars across the border before uh, these security tariffs can take effect. But the entire rest of our trade portfolio, everything else we trade is exposed, except oil and gas. And that's because in the 1980s, Congress fixed this national security law to protect oil and gas, but everything else that we trade is subject to these direct tariffs or the tit-for-tat retaliatory tariffs. So the agreement has really done nothing to foster security in North American trade. So businesses have to think about their supply and production chains to see how exposed they are to security tariffs, but also tit-for-tat retaliatory tariffs. And that's fairly easy to do.
0: That's a really good point. And just to follow up on that, would it be reasonable, say, to come up with a plan B, plan C, so that businesses have a course of action they can take if, for example, a product that's important in their supply chain, key to their business, gets slapped with a tariff or a retaliatory tariff? Should they have a plan in place to deal with that?
1: Absolutely. And the cost of doing that in terms of time and effort and money is fairly low. Again, you can contact a lawyer, Or you can contact a customs broker. I think at one point at Canada West, we are going to put up a list of the most common retaliatory tariffs. So, uh, how do I know what the president's going to do? How do I know what these retaliatory tariffs will be? Well, retaliatory tariffs, it's not an exercise in rocket science, it's an exercise in sadism. And it's pretty easy to figure out which products constantly get dragged into Harley Davidson's and Bourbon are just uh, two examples of things that you know are going to come. So yes, the businesses can look at what they import from the U.S., figure out what things have historically always been subject to a retaliatory tariffs. And you can have a pretty good job, not an exact idea, but a fairly good idea, so that you can either sleep at night or start looking around for other supplies uh, to prepare in advance.
0: I know hindsight's 2020 at the time when this deal was announced, Ottawa certainly billed it as the best deal on the table, much better than having no deal in place, the best deal that could be secured given the circumstances. Would you agree with that? Was it the right choice to get this particular deal in place at the time we did?
1: Absolutely, because we had no choice. The other choice was to not to have an agreement with the U.S. And, you know, Our tariffs in North America, especially between Canada and the U.S., are fairly low. Mexico, they've been a bit higher. NAFTA reduced those World Trade Organization tariffs that you give to everyone around the world. The North American deal is better than that deal. So going back to that deal would have been painful for us. But, um, you know, what we have in the new NAFTA agreement, is essentially eighty percent, seventy percent of what we had with the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which was Mexico, U.S., Canada, some other countries, but those it was essentially an updating of NAFTA. So we essentially spent three and a half years of strum and drag, agony, paranoia, fear, worry, uncertainty, to get eighty percent of what we had already negotiated five years ago with the TPP. So. But with Donald Trump, when Donald Trump ripped up the TPP and said "win-win" doesn't work for me, it's got to be "I win, you lose." You know, you're you're fighting a whole different uh, battle with Donald Trump. All that to say, yeah, there was going to be no good deal. It was a matter of limiting our losses, and indeed, there are losses. This agreement causes economic welfare losses and GDP losses when compared to the original NAFTA. And those losses occur in each of the three countries. But what we did was manage to limit those losses. And that was the best that could be hoped for.
0: Mm -hmm. We are rounding the corner on four years under President Trump. Uh, Let's assume for a minute that we don't get signed up for another four years. What does the US-Canada relationship potentially look like under a different president?
1: I think it looks a lot better. So, obviously, the Trumpism will not disappear with Donald Trump. There will be elements of the, the, the populist uh, movement that put him in office still in place. Uh, you look at the Senate candidates, the House candidates. That being said, though, at the level of the administration, it will change drastically. Joe Biden loves Canada, um, or to be correct, he loves Central Canada. He loves Justin Trudeau, and I think he probably loves B.C. Those of us in the prairies, uh, not so much. Uh, he's made it clear that Keystone is going no place under his administration. Not that it's going any place under Trump. But um, I think, you know, in terms of the personal relationship, Trudeau-Biden, yes. Uh, his appreciation for Canada, his appreciation for our contributions to American security, to American prosperity, will return. I was in Washington. I was in Ottawa for uh, Biden's farewell dinner. Uh, he paid a visit to Canada right before leaving office. And man, it was just a love fest like you've never seen. You know, he basically said, you guys have to carry the torch. We're lost in the States. We're counting on Canada to carry the torch. So that's the type of person that we'll have coming into um, the Oval Office. That's not an endorsement, obviously, but it's just um, a- a- an analysis. So. The relationship will get a lot better uh, at the leader to leader level. Uh, The relationship will get better institutionally because those who work to support North American integration will be supported. There'll be consistency, there'll be transparency, and there'll be predictability, again, in the relationship. And I think all of those things are key with the proviso that the, the Trump guys and the Trump forces are still going to be causing problems but they'll be backseat drivers instead of uh, having their hands around the steering wheel.
0: Any chance that we see the new NAFTA addressed or opened up or fixed in any way under a President Biden, or do we have it for however long we have it at this point?
1: I think we have it for however long we have it. The best chance is that the Americans come back into the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. We make some changes when they come back in and that runs in parallel with uh, the new North American agreement. So the Trans-Pacific Partnership has much, much better rules for moving business people. So work visas, uh, the trusted traveler type of entry and exit. uh, That's much better under the TPP. and a place like Vancouver could certainly benefit from having uh, the Americans as part of that scheme. Your Cascadia corridor, to move people between Washington and, um, and or sorry, Seattle and Vancouver that can then expand to include Tokyo and other things is a great possibility. Um, so you have that sort of potential coming onto the table. Right now we have a competitive advantage with the Americans in moving people to Japan, Singapore, Australia, and other places. But I, I don't think that advantage would entirely be lost if the Americans were to come into the agreement we gained some benefits, but yeah, the NAFTA agreement hasn't updated the rules for moving people since the days when you could smoke on the airplanes. That's how old those rules are. <laughs> A lot of people out there are saying, what, you could smoke on planes? What was that? That's yeah. how old the <laughs> rules are. But yeah, so um, that, that's an area where we really, uh, the opportunity cost of not updating the agreement was significant. We've fallen behind other trade blocks.
0: I know the latest polling data puts this as really a non-starter, but if we do somehow end up with President Trump for another term, what should we take away from the first four years? How can we maybe better arm ourselves to deal with that randomness and that lack of predictability in a second term when it comes to trade?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I've got uh, two articles out in Huffington Post, one that says Trump can never be president, and the second one that says, I was wrong about <laughs> Trump. <never. laughs> so the only poll that counts is the one on election day. Uh, but no, should he come back in? God, you know, hopefully it'll have dawned on us that we took a lot for granted in our relationship with the U.S. We assumed that Canada would be appreciated, that the brief window of liberalization with the U.S., um, would last uh, rationality. What we're seeing in the U.S. has always been there. The the nastiness and the ugliness. I grew up in the States. I'm not surprised by by what I see, but we kind of lost sight that that was always there in the States. The other thing is we have better trade agreements. We have the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. We have agreements with the European Union. We have better trade agreements in terms of rules, in terms of opportunity to go to markets that are growing faster. Um, So hopefully we'll have learned the lesson that as the U.S. has gotten more complicated and less secure, other markets have gotten better, more secure, more attractive. The U.S. is still the best market, but that difference is closed. And hopefully this period of Donald Trump has got us to look at these other markets. We're looking at where the puck's gone. Markets that are growing, rules that are better, win-win trade agreements. Um, Hopefully, that's what will come from this, the fact that we'll finally start to look at some other opportunities.
0: Carlo, it's always such a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for coming on with your insight and guidance.
1: Hey, it was great to see you.
0: Great to see you too. That's Carlo Dade, Director of the Trade and Investment Centre at the Canada West Foundation. And this has been BIV Today. I'm Haley Wooden. We'll be back with another video and podcast tomorrow.